Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Uh, like I said, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 4. Uh, we find ourselves in uh, the stages of um, Solomon's reign, and, and the author wishes to connect what he had just prayed for uh, in chapter 3 to be able to have wisdom. And what we saw last week as we looked there is that God gave him wisdom to be able to know how to handle judicial matters um, things uh, regarding uh, justice. And uh, here Solomon, we saw how he handled that situation with the two women and the the, the, the baby that had died. And uh, he said, well, let bring me a sword. And this is how he handled wisdom. And the, the goal of that was to be able to have justice administered to the baby and, and the woman whose baby uh, truly was still alive. And here... Now we see the ongoing uh, works of that as uh, Solomon establishes his, his kingdom with this, with, with this wisdom. Now I've mentioned before that we shouldn't get too hung up on uh, what's preceding uh, chapter 3 and saying that at chapter 3 is where he got wisdom. So anything up to this point, Solomon doesn't have any wisdom because what happens is we see that Solomon later doesn't have any wisdom in some matters as well, not uh, wisdom from the Lord anyway. It uh, might be wise in the ways of the Lord, but uh, in, in the ways of the world, not the way, ways of the Lord. But uh, what we see here is we do see how Solomon then applies this wisdom to his kingdom in different factors. And last week we saw how he ruled uh, justly. And this we see another list of names. Um, so what I'm going to do is read this or try and read this. And then we will uh, look at this together uh, and try and uh, unpack it. So here now, uh, the word of the Lord from First um, Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Solomon was the king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Elihorath and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder. Ben-Aniah, the son of Jehoiada, was the commander in command of the army. Zadok and Abathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's, and king's friend. Ashishar, Ahizar, uh, was in charge of the palace, and Adorn Iram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had twelve officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names, Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Dekar in Maskaz, Shalbim, uh, Shaalbim, uh, Beth Shemesh, and Elam Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed in Araboth. To him belong Sakoth uh, and all the land of Hether, Ben uh, Abinadab in all Napath, 
Dor had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Ahilod in Tanakh, in Megiddo, and all Bashan, and is beside Zarthan, below Jezreel, and from Beth Shean to Abel Mihola, as far as the other side of Jokmiam, Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead. He had the villages of Jar uh, and the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. And he was in the region of Argob, which is in Bashan. Sixty great cities with the walls of bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Idu, in Mahanaim. Ahimaz, in Naphtali. He, ta- he had taken Bathemath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai, in Asher. And Bial Uth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Paura, in Issachar, Shemai, and the son of Elah, in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, in the country of Shion, king of the Amorites, and the Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. So we find ourselves in yet another interesting passage, um, a passage filled with names. Um, and what we see is, as we look through this, we need to be reminded of a few things, that we find ourselves in yet another name of uh, passage, uh, list of names in the Bible. Uh, we find them all throughout, and this is the difficult task when you preach verse by verse. You can't skip over these things. Uh, you need to... Uh, look at them, study them, and unpack them, and it is kind of difficult, but you notice that they're throughout the whole Bible. Uh, you find them in genealogies, greetings, officers, as we see here. Uh, you read through books like Numbers, you find them frequently. Uh, we know uh, that God is a God who keeps lists. He shows us in His words, uh, in His word, that He writes things down. Uh, throughout the the Bible, we find ourselves with 25 genealogies, genealogies of Matthew, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, uh, David, uh, the kings of Judah, uh, the kings of Israel. All of these are found throughout uh, what we find throughout the Bible, and we find ourselves more lists. Like today, we saw in First and Second Samuel, uh, with the mighty men of David, uh, finding ourselves with a long list of uh, long names that are hard to pronounce. But even you think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. Well, it's not. It's a New Testament thing as well. You turn to the New Testament, there's a list of names. You look Romans 16, a whole chapter, basically a list of names. Colossians chapter 4, uh, you find that God is a God who keeps lists under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The uh, God, God has used these men carried along by the Holy Spirit to be able to inspire them to be able to record names. And, uh, and I've mentioned before that we should be encouraged by this. Because what we see here is that we see men and women in the lists of names who are able in some capacity or another to be able to serve the Lord. 
we don't know their name. We don't know what they did particularly, how they served the Lord, or even how to pronounce it. And yet, in their life, they sought to be able to give their all, to be able to hopefully uh, serve God in all of their glory. We know people that are uh, remembered and, and heard about, David and Solomon. We spend a lot of time on them because the Bible speaks about them a lot. But the Bible also speaks about all these other people, men and women, who, um, who are not remembered per se. Uh, and that should encourage us as we are probably not going to be those people who are remembered. Uh, biographies are written of people like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham, John Stott, just to name a few in recent history, who have uh, made a great impact on God's kingdom in uh, some way or another. And here's these faithful men who have served God, and, and yet we might be serving God in our small little world, in our small little system, and and it might not seem like a lot, but God is a God who records names. He pay attention, pays attention. We don't have the visibility of some of these greats, but here, these people still served God. This is why I find it great not only just to read biographies of those who have um, who have heard about, they're great to be able to find, but when you often find some of the, the smaller biographies written by people that no one has ever heard about, you... You get encouraged by that. I remember reading one of um, D.A. Carson's dad. D.A. Carson's dad, is, uh, he was a Canadian pastor who served the Lord throughout his whole life and cared for his uh, sick wife towards the end of his, um, her life. And, and here, uh, D.A. Carson went to seminary and he actually found out the impact that he, his dad had on you know, a Baptist denomination that was going through a difficult time. And he had no idea. His dad had been on the side fighting for the word uh, to be preached, and uh, he had no idea. He was such a humble man, and it was such a great encouragement to be able to read of a man serving God in such a faithful way, and I think that's encouraging for us uh, to be able to read things like this, and maybe uh, we find ourselves to be encouraged by how we serve God, that we might not have biographies written about us, but we still uh, can serve the Lord in uh, a manner in which he has called us. And we also see that God loves lists, and then we should love lists. <laughs> we love, uh, why do we love them? Because when we think about it, there are lists about people. It doesn't matter what type of list we find ourselves in. There's, um, specifically when we're talking about people lists, um, there are lists of people. And here we have that God writes down these people's names to be recorded for us to be able to read. That uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 that he, all of Scripture is, is, um, is written for our benefit. And here we find lists of names written for our benefit. All Scripture is breathed out by God, useful for teaching, cor- correction, and instruction. But also there's another thing, another book that is written down, a whole list of names that we never see. Uh, there's another list that God has written down, and that's in the book of life. And here's another encouraging thing, that here we have God reveals himself through creation. He has a special revelation of what he has revealed to us through his word. But there's words that are written down somewhere that he has not revealed to us such as in the book of life. And that's encouraging that not only we have a 
book of uh, lists in this book, there's a whole other book filled with people's names. And it's encouraging as we think about it as Paul writes in Philippians. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, in the midst of this list that he's describing, he then says, here's some names that are in the book of life. An encouraging thing as we think about how we serve God in different capacities. And then there's a great warning about those names who are not in the book of life. If any name was not found in the, written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a whole book filled with a list of names, and we should be encouraged when we read about a list of names in the Bible. Uh, we pray that we would be in that other book, the book of life, um, and it, that it would appear on that list. And that's the list that really matters. So we need to be reminded of when we see this, that we're speaking of people and God records those people. The second thing we can see in this passage is principles. That not only that God records people, but he uses people as well. That here he uses these people to be able to come alongside, as, as you think about Solomon and what he's about to in, encompass and accomplish through the building of the temple, that God uses Solomon, whose name we all know, and he uses these other people to be able to assist and help Solomon in, in the building of the temple. He uses these people to be able to help serve Solomon, the true king. And I think that's an important principle for us to be able to understand that God uh, is all-powerful, but yet in how he works, he uses people to be able to carry out his power and his glory to be able to show that. He, he did not need Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. He could have done all the signs and wonders without a mouthpiece like Moses. But yet the Lord chose Moses to be a mouthpiece for himself and his people that he might have a, a representative here on earth to be able to show uh, what he is like. Now, he still uses power, but he still uses people. But the second thing we also see is Solomon then establishes his kingdom and sets up his kingdom and, and looks at what he's doing. We see here that God is also not a, a person who keeps lists, is also someone who is well-ordered and structured. You can't just merely think that here is Solomon uh, now he's got this wisdom that he's asked from God. He's got this wisdom because he's got to manage all these people, right? That's the wisdom that he asked. Who can govern these people? I need wisdom to be able to govern these people. And then what we see here, how he, he administers justice, and now he sets up his administration to be able to run in all of this. And God, using his wisdom, has set up structures and order in the way that he has it to be able to function. Nations and tribes, representatives. You see this not only just in Solomon's kingdom, but you see this even when the tribes are started. And uh, here um, Moses is with Jethro, the Jethro principle. It's too much for one man to be able to handle. So you need to be able to set up people over your ten, uh, ten, uh, hundreds, thousands to be able to help judge. So he has structure, and we see it not just in this, but we see it all around the world, right? That God is a God of order. You see it even, even with days, seasons. We're able to see God as one of order. But we also see this in the New Testament, don't we? 
We don't see a nation that exclusively God, that God only uses this one nation to be able to share the whole world. But what he uses instead of a nation, he uses the church. As the Westminster Confession calls it, a, a church under age is, is Israel. But now the church with Christ as the head. You see this principle again in church structure. Again, we're to do things decently and in order. And a part of that is how God has structured it. He's structured things to be ordered, that we have families, we have churches, we have governing bodies over those churches. In our Presbyterian church, we have sessions and presbyteries, courts, and general assembly or synods. That here, Solomon is using God's wisdom to be able to order his administration and, his, and what he does is he uses people. But we also see here priorities. In this list, the first thing that we see here is he has priests. Priests that are there at the, force, at the start. One of the priorities of a good godly king is not merely just to look after his people, but to look after his people that they might be able to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's the chief end, if that's the chief focus, then the godly king of Solomon seeks them to be able to glorify and enjoy God forever. And a way that it, that is done is through worship. And here, Solomon, the high officials that it says at the start, he has these priests. And one of greatest, Solomon's greatest legacies, as we will see in the coming chapters, is the temple where the priests function and work. And this also will be a barometer for how we see other kings relate to how they worship God. What's their relationship to the priests? What priests do they surround themselves with? What God do they worship? It doesn't take long to be able to think about one of the, the wicked king Ahab. He surrounds himself with prophets of Baal. We've noticed this before as well, that in Solomon's kingdom, he has the threefold unity of the priests. Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet. And Shimei and Ray and David's mighty man were not with Adonijah. Here they sided with David and would side with Solomon. But you have the prophet, priest, and king. Those three things in unity that you see throughout, especially during 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The important threefold structure. Each of a shadow of Christ and how he fulfills all of these three offices in one perfect person. But here you see in the Old Testament you need three men. And then all to be godly men to be able to work together. You have often what you will find is you will have a godly prophet, but not a godly king, not a godly priest. You might have a godly priest that affects the king to become godly. You have prophets who hopefully help uh, point the king back to the word to call them to repentance. But also, you, I think in this list of priorities, it depends on how you read it. You also might see some of the cracks in Solomon's kingdom. 
Now, many people, many scholars assume that uh, these two people here, Ahoreph and Ahijah, the son of Shisha, as secretaries, that they find that they're Egyptian names. And this comes back to before uh, the start of chapter 3, when Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, I think you might be able to say that there's some cracks in this, as you see later when he has uh, a, a division of forced labor. We saw that appear in David's kingdom uh, later towards the end. Um, but here, many people assume that here these secretaries are a part of this uh, alliance, and here they are foreign correspondents, you might say. Now, I don't, uh, we're not told specifically in the Bible, so I'm, I'm cautious to be able to make that judgment, but a, a lot of scholars do uh, point that out. So, but I, I noted that you have here uh, some of those little bits of cracks that you start appearing in, in Solomon's um, uh, reign as well. You noted those in David and Saul that often we'd be able to pick up on those. We knew what was coming. But you'd also be able to see um, little bits of warnings. David and his wives early on um, when he was, uh, before he'd become king of Israel. But here what we see is that in verse 7, his priority was then to be able to establish these 12 divisions to be able to provide food for him and his household. We'll see this again next week as well. But here he had 12 officers to be able to provide food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for a month in the year. Now what will actually be the breaking point for in chapter 12 is when the people of Israel come back and they say, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service on your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So at some point in Solomon's reign, this yoke becomes a heavy burden for the people of Israel. And this then becomes a heavy department, uh, a heavy weight upon the people of Israel. So they said, he made our, the yoke heavy. Um, and that's what we see here. Maybe some warning signs that here Solomon is leaning towards this where at the, people are happy in this point. In verse 20, we'll look at this later. But people are happy and content at this point. But at some point it becomes a, a heavy load for them to be able to see. And that's exactly what Rehoboam does when he asks about this old man that stood before Solomon, his father. And they responded in verse 7, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men and gave him and took counsel of the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer his, this people who have said this? Lighten the yoke of your father has put on us. The young men turn around and said, well, you thought this was heavy. You just wait. It's going to get even worse. Again, this 
brings us back to what happens in Egypt, right? That as this marriage alliance with Pharaoh, we see what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh had a heavy burden upon the people of Israel. They cried out for God to be able to help deliver them. And what did they do? He put a heavier yoke on them. And that's what Rehoboam does. But again, we see these warning signs early on. But that's exactly what Samuel said a king would do. He said that they would take, take, take. He'll take your sons, appoint them to his chariots. He'll appoint himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifty, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olives and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. What I think you see here in chapter 4 is, is somewhat warning signs of this. I don't think that Solomon is at a point where we see it, where they're complaining. But I think we see that, that movement towards this way here. And I think that's what you see is this, these small little fractures appearing here that we'll see at the end. But also what we see in this passage is promises. Now, I make this point all the time, and sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record in this, this way, but I think I make this point a lot because I think the Bible makes this point a lot. That when we consider what the promise is that God made to Abraham was a twofold promise of that of land and offspring. And what you see here is you see that promise being fulfilled during the time of Solomon's reign particularly in verses 20 to 21, is what we see. The Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is exactly the promise that God made to uh, Abraham in chapter 22. And I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And here you see this blessing coming to uh, fruition underneath Solomon's reign as well as underneath David's. But I think you really see the height of it underneath Solomon's reign when God comes and dwells with his people. The ultimate fulfillment of what God does to be able to do is that his people uh, would be dwelling with him as their God. And here you see that, uh, that here, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. That's exactly what God had promised would happen, that God would do these things. When you think about where they began, you had Abraham and Sarai and, and Lot, and that's it. And yet, here they are now, this great sand of the sea. And that's exactly why Solomon asked for wisdom in the first place, because they were God's great people. When he said in verse 8, 
your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered and counted for multitude. So here we see that promise being fulfilled underneath Solomon in a, in a, in a physical sense. We know it is ultimately fulfilled under Christ. But here that shadow is fulfilled, but not only just offspring, but also land. In verse 18 of chapter 15 in Genesis, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And here are the markers that God had laid out. We see this is what Solomon's reign is doing. In verse 21, In all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of Philistines to the border of Egypt. Here you see that been fulfilled and we see this in Exodus chapter 23 and God will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines into the wilderness of the Euphrates and I will give the inhabitants of land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you Joshua chapter 1 verse 4 from the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river the river Euphrates to the land of the Hittites the great sea going down the sun shall be your territory So we see this promise of land and offspring underneath uh, Solomon. But I also think there's another avenue that we see here that we're reminded of, how God fulfills his promises. And we see them in the names as well in verse 13. Ben-Geber of Ramath-Gilead, he had villages of Jar and the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob which is in Bashan, 60 great cities in the walls of bronze bars. And then in verse 19, Gerber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the, son, the country of Shion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. There was one governor who was over the land. Here you see this repetition of Bashan, and then as specifically in verse 19, the country of Shion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. This is a very important thing that comes up over and over again about how God has defeated the kings of these lands. Shion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. We see it in Numbers 21. And Israel lived, through the land of the Ammonite, lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent a spy out to Jazir, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. And they turned up and went the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, in the battle of Eri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Shion, the king of Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until they had no survivor left. They possessed his land. And here we see that promise of God saying, you're going to defeat them. And here their names come up again. And this list in this random verse, it might seem, that here... The author seeks to us to remind us that God fulfills his promises, that he is the one who is mighty, who is able to defeat the enemies. And we're reminded of this. This becomes one of the markers, 
not only that God is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who brought them out of the house of slavery, but this is also a, land, a marker which has happened. You remember what happened to Rahab. Rahab heard about these people, how, the, how God had defeated these kings. Not only just Pharaoh, but these kings as well. In Psalm 35, actually, it brings attention to this. He struck down the firstborn in Egypt, both man and beast, who was in your midst. O Egypt, Egypt, send signs and wonders against Pharaoh to all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Shion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, and a heritage to the people of Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And then the next psalm over. To, to him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Shion, the king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave the land as an heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we see this promise of land and offspring being fulfilled, but a, a close attention being brought up to how God has defeated his enemy. And underneath Solomon, we're reminded of how he carries this out. And we always see the shadow of Christ in his kingdom as we look at these passages here. That here you have these mighty kings who are defeated, and their land becomes God's land, uh, Solomon's land. And now we think about that in a spiritual manner. Well, who's the prince and ruler of this world? Well, Satan. It's his domain, right? Well, Christ defeats Satan. And now they're remembered no more, and then their land becomes his. Christ is ruler over all, that every king will bow. Every name. As Paul th- talks about his humiliation, his Christ coming down, he then talks about his exaltation. That Christ is then highly exalted in him. That God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That every, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or as Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made his good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unreproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So here again, Paul even makes the contrast of of the king at that time or that region of Pontius Pilate, and here Christ is standing before him, but yet Christ is above Pontius Pilate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so, too, we see this shadow underneath Solomon, and we see this, and we will see it more and more as as we go through, as God fulfilling his promises to be able to see that physical sense, but what we see is that spiritual sense, that 
that, that fulfillment not of a shadow under Christ, but Christ actually fulfilling that underneath Solomon. And we see this in this, this strange list of names that God shows us how he uses, how he establishes, how, how the church is to be run as we look back and look at how uh, there's structure and order and had Christ as the head and, and uses people to be able to carry out his mission and, and purpose and plan. But also, as we see, even that glorious truth of how he fulfills that, that many people will come, as we will see at the end of this chapter, to be able to hear the wisdom of the king, to sit underneath him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.